Hi everyone, it's good to see you. Um, it's nice to see you if you're a visitor, especially today. My name's Ian, I'm the Minister of Church here. I hope that you'll feel comfortable and enjoy uh, your time with us. Um, I, I want to begin today by being quite vulnerable with you. I, I've had a lousy week this week. Um, I don't know how you feel when you come to church. This week, for all sorts of reasons, has been quite traumatic. Some of you know some of the reasons, some of you don't. Um, it's really affected my preparation, which is bad news for you, because when my preparation's bad, I speak for longer. So get ready. Um, but hey, what, what I'd like to do is just pray and uh, ask the Lord to help me and help you uh, just to gain maximum benefit from his word uh, today. So let, let's just pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the opportunity we have of coming to hear you speak to us from heaven through your word, the Bible. Father, this is a precious time. We need to hear from you. Um, Father, we want to be refreshed. We want to be... Um, we are hungry and thirsty in our souls, and we need to hear your voice speaking to us, reassuring us. So I really pray today, Father, that you would be with us now, that you would help me um, to speak your word, and that you would help all of us by the work of your spirit in our hearts to hear your voice and to be challenged and encouraged Father, I pray that all of us who are here this afternoon on this lovely day, I pray that we would not leave this place having not heard something of your great love for us, your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're starting a new series today. It's only a short one, four weeks. Is that four? Um, we're looking at the Old Testament book of Ruth. Um, when I first planned for us to do this earlier in the year, none of us knew what trauma our country was about to experience. I'd already planned to call this little series Light in the Darkness. But now that feels even more relevant than I thought it would have been when I first thought of that idea. We've witnessed terrorist attacks in London and Manchester. I think it's fair to say that all of us, to some extent, feel the darkness. But it's also, I think, been deeply moving to see the yearning in people's hearts, in our society to see and to feel some kind of light shining in this apparent darkness. In Manchester, the council opened a book of condolence online. And uh, people could go on there to give a little message after the attack at the arena a few weeks ago. And one person recorded a message that was a quotation from Martin Luther King, the famous... Um, leader in America, a civil rights activist. He's a minister as well. And, and the quotation reads, I refuse to accept the view that mankind is so tragically bound to the starless midnight of racism and war that the bright daybreak of peace and brotherhood can never become a reality. I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word. The fact He's right when he says that, isn't it, Martin Luther King? The fact is, none of us want a starless midnight, do we? We long for a peaceful, bright dawn. And it's not just trauma, is it? Politically, I'm not a politician, don't panic, but politically... We're living in days that seem to me to be so angry and tribal. If you're feeling happy today, it's been a sunny day today, if you're feeling happy today, but you want to feel depressed, when you go home, just go on some forum where there's a political article 
and read the comment section. That's a sure way to make you feel depressed. You'll find there the most extreme forms of intolerance, bullying, vitriol. It's hard to have a conversation without someone getting offended. Tim Farron this week, whatever you think of his politics, had to resign as the leader of a political party in this country because his Christian faith is not considered acceptable in our society anymore. One writer this week, not a Christian, as far as I know, wrote in an article this week in a magazine, we live in a society now of liberal intolerance where only certain worldviews are deemed acceptable. This is born of a sincere desire, but it's become a form of persecution in itself. It's just focused on a newly unpopular group. People stand up and say, I'm all for tolerance, but if you disagree with them, they want to punch you in the face. How tolerant is that? So the book of Ruth could not be more relevant. There are three features of this book. It's only short, four chapters. If you go home tonight, you could read it in like ten minutes. Four chapters. There are three features of this book that I want you to see straight away. And it's these. In the story of Ruth, these these three things are true. God is quietly at work during the darkest of times in the lives of ordinary people. That's a sentence worth writing down and remembering. God is quietly at work during the darkest of times in the lives of ordinary people. Why do I say darkest of times? Here's why. The book of Ruth comes after the book of Judges. It says in verse 1 of Ruth, in the days when the judges ruled. It's set in the time of the judges. Why is that important? Well, this this is around 1000 BC and the people of God, the Israelites, are living now in the promised land. Last year, we did a sermon series in the book of Judges. We worked our way through it. And the book of Judges is a sad catalogue of misery, violence, corruption, immorality, and oppression. It was a great series. (laughs) It it was more positive than that. The Israelite nation live in the promised land in the time of the judges, but they continually forget God and forsake him and his word and his promises and his warnings and his love and his kindness. And it's almost as if their light in the nation has gone out. It's dark. You only have to look at the end of the book of Judges. You don't need to turn to it because it's on the same page. Page 266, the last verse of Judges. Look what it says. In those days, in that time, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. That could summarize Rotherham in 2017. We don't have a king. Everyone did as they saw fit. That's life in in the modern world, isn't it? Everyone does their own thing. We live in a culture of individuals. That was 1000 BC in the time of the judges. In the words of Martin Luther King, this time was like a starless midnight. And then comes the book of Ruth. Right when the darkest time was, was, was at its blackest, There's a little candle here in one family. Light in that darkness. Why do I say the lives of ordinary people? There are three main characters in this story. It's a great story. One of the reasons why this story is loved by people who know it is because the characters are so relatable. Two-thirds of the book as well is dialogue, so the narrator really tells the whole story through their relationships and speech. Even though the book's called Ruth, the main character is her mother-in-law, Naomi. And we'll feel today, I think, her pain and sadness 
as she is battered by a series of tragic losses. But by the end of the book, she is so overflowingly full that she can hardly contain her joy. This book could have been called the book of Naomi because really the plot is all about how she goes from being utterly empty and desperate to being full and blessed. That, that's the plot of the book. It's really about Naomi. And then there's Ruth herself. We'll meet Ruth today. She's basically an immigrant from a pagan country who converts to worshipping the true and living God. And we'll admire her courage, her determination, her energy, and her sacrificial love for her mother-in-law, Naomi. And then there's Boaz. We won't really meet Boaz today. We mentioned him right at the end in verse 1 of chapter 2. Boaz, the towering, gentle, manly hero of the story. The kind of guy that if you've got daughters, you'd want them to marry. That's Boaz. And he becomes the great solution to all of this family's problems. He is the great redeemer who solves their problems and deals with their fears. What else did I say there? The darkest of times, ordinary people, God quietly at work. In this little book, there are no miracles. There are no visions. There are no dreams. There's nothing in these four chapters that we might call overtly supernatural. It's all so ordinary. It's not that God is not involved in their lives, but God's work here in this book is all done in a hidden way in the hopes and dreams and joys and sorrows of ordinary people. The book of Ruth is not so much national as personal. It doesn't involve the military. There are no wars. It doesn't involve politics, thank goodness. It is a down-to-earth, homely, human story, a love story even about one family in an obscure town called Bethlehem that was made famous much later by the birth of Jesus. And listen, the way God works out his hidden purposes here in the lives of these people is really surprising, even subversive. It's upside down. People sometimes talk about the Bible and they say it's old-fashioned. It's repressive in its views. It's bigoted in its values. It's anti-women. It's too dogmatic. Listen, I want you to see that we have a book here in the Old Testament dedicated in a man-dominated culture to a woman. Not just any woman, but she's not even an Israelite. She's a foreign woman who at the beginning of this book is not even a believer in God. The whole book of Ruth is about a spiritual, social outcast. Ruth is an outsider. And do you know where this book goes? At the end of the book, there's a little genealogy. It seems a little bit odd to have a little family tree at the end. Some critics have criticised this book to say someone must have edited that because it doesn't fit with the rest of the book, which is rubbish. This genealogy at the end is the crowning glory of the book. Do you know why? Because the family tree of Ruth leads to King David, the greatest king that Israel had ever had. Had. So while at this moment, in 1000 BC, the world at large is doing its best to destroy itself, God is quietly at work choosing a pagan refugee from a foreign country 
who's on the outside to bring her in and splice her in to the line of King David, who's an ancestor of King Jesus. This woman becomes the great, 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 great grandmother of Christ. That's the God that we're talking about. The focus of this little book is important spiritually. One of the challenges for us, all of us, in these days, is that we all feel the trauma in our nation, but often none of us really want to face ourselves or face God. We all tend to think that whatever's wrong, it's someone else's fault over there. But if the light is going to shine in the darkness, it has to begin with you and me turning our hearts back to this God who is pursuing us like he pursued Ruth, even when we're far away from him. The book of Ruth shows that God is not a snob who looks down on the vulnerable. This God is a God who loves the outsider and wants to bring them in. The great theme of chapter 1 is the story of Ruth's conversion, really. The reason I talk about conversion being the big theme in chapter 1 is because in this chapter, there's a Hebrew word. You know this was written in Hebrew. There's a Hebrew word. It's the word sub. I don't know how to say it. I think, you have, I think it's got a H in it, actually. So, shub. And that word means to return or to come back. It appears 12 times on this one page. And the word is often used to describe what happens when someone who has turned their back on God turns back to God. That's what the word really means. But it's emphasized by what happens in this chapter. I've got one of my famous maps here because I couldn't find one, so I drew my own. So here's, here's a little map I drew. There's the, that, that little sea is called the Dead Sea. That's the one you can float in because um, it's full of salt. And there's Bethlehem. And um, the first section in this chapter is verse 1 to, six, 1 to 5, where this little family leave Bethlehem and they go to Moab. Later on, at the end, verse 19 to 22, there's a homecoming when Naomi comes home back to Bethlehem. I don't know if she went round the Dead Sea that way, but it just looked better that way. And the middle section is basically a conversation that they have on the road on the way home. Okay? That's how this chapter breaks up. They leave, and then nearly 15 years later or so, they come home. And as they're going home, they have a big chat on the road on the way. So that, that's kind of how it breaks down. So even this whole chapter is focused on returning, coming home. And even though the story mainly concerns Naomi, the center point of this chapter is the surprising conversion of her daughter-in-law, Ruth. Just look with me at verse 16. This is chapter 1, verse 16. Ruth makes an amazing speech. We'll come back to it later. She says to Naomi, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. I don't want my own gods anymore. What I want is your God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. That, friends, is a conversion. <laughs> This is a pagan unbeliever converting 
to believe in the living God. That's a conversion right there in the middle of this chapter. As part of my studies recently, I was reading a book that I borrowed from Ian Fenton, actually, I think, on the history of evangelicalism. That's a big word. Our church is called Rotherham Evangelical Church. I sometimes wish we should change the name because no one knows what an evangelical is. Um, but this book, believe it or not, was about the history of evangelicalism over the last 300 years. And the author identified four key marks of an evangelical. This is not a denominational thing, because these four things apply to anyone who might be a Methodist, Church of England, whoever they are. These four things are the mark of an evangelical Christian. These are the four. Number one, the centrality of the Bible as the divinely inspired and infallible word of God. Number two, the centrality of the cross. We've been singing about it, where Jesus Christ died in the place of sinful human beings so that we could be forgiven. Thirdly, the importance of Christians being active in sharing that message of good news with people And fourthly, the fourth mark of an evangelical is the crucial importance of conversion. What we mean by conversion is that point in a person's life when their relationship with God, like Ruth, is completely changed. Before this point, you couldn't say that they were a Christian. They had no relationship with God they, they had no forgiveness of sins. Spiritually, they were dead to God. They were still under the judgment of God. If they died, they wouldn't enter God's heaven, but would face an eternity separated from this God. But on hearing the good news of God's love, God opens their eyes to see their true condition before God and to see what Jesus has done through his death and resurrection to secure forgiveness and they respond to God by turning from their sins and putting their faith in Jesus and so they become a child of God. And they're now a new person with a new destiny. They've been Converted. That's conversion. For some people, it might be a dramatic, sudden experience. I think it's fair to say that for others, it might be a more gradual realization. But nevertheless, this is what we're talking about. Someone who's moved from death to life, from unbelief to faith in God. That means that people who are evangelicals never divide people up on the base of their nationality or their gender or their social class or status. In the end, there's only two different kinds of people in the world. Converted people and unconverted people. People who by the grace of God know and love God and those who are outside of that experience and who don't know and love God. In this chapter, this, this is what we might call an Old Testament conversion. Ruth moves from being a worshipper of many other pagan gods to becoming a worshipper of the living and true God. I think I've done that point to death now, haven't I? I've got two observations to make about how Ruth got converted. And they're really simple, and that's the rest of my talk. So, number one, Ruth's conversion only became possible because Naomi came home. If Naomi hadn't gone and come back home, Ruth would not know God. So the story of Naomi is very crucial to Ruth being converted. And my second reason, I'll tell you later when we've done the first one. So let's, if you've got your Bible open, let's have a little dig into what happens. The opening of chapter one is very tight, very quick. 
It all set in the time of the judges. We've seen that. There was a famine in the land. So a family of four, a man and his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab, which is kind of southeast of where Israel was, up in the northwest. What's going on? This is ironic. Do do, do you know what the word Bethlehem actually means, literally, in the Hebrew? Bethlehem means house of bread. Sounds good, that, doesn't it? House of bread. I don't mean a house built of bread. But a house of bread. Now, there's a famine. Bethlehem, the house of bread, has become the house of no bread. I love the way Sam Brown laughs at my jokes. He's the only one. Faithful friend. More than this, though, had not God told his people, the Israelites, that when they went to promised land, it would be a land flowing with milk and honey and presumably bread. This was meant to be the land of abundance. This was meant to be their utopia. What on earth is going on here for the house of bread to have no bread? Well, way back in the time of Moses, before they even came into the promised land, Moses taught the people. Let me read to you what Moses said to them. This is a few years before. Moses said, If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all of his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth and all these blessings will come upon you if you obey the Lord your God. You'll be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed and the crops of your land and the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flock. Your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. You'll be blessed when you come out and blessed, sorry, you'll be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. But in the same passage, God also warns them that the opposite will be true too. So Moses says this, however, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. The sky above your head will be bronze, the ground beneath you iron, and the Lord will turn the rain of your country into dust and powder. If ever there was a reminder that we need to listen to both God's promises and his warnings, because both of them are serious, it's right there. So in this particular case, for this family, the reason for the famine wasn't just the lack of rain. The reason for the famine was that the people of God had stopped worshipping God. They turned their backs on him, and God said, if you turn your backs on me, this is what will happen. The question, of course, is what to do. But God had told them what to do. Later on, in the same passage again, God promises what would happen if they, here's that Hebrew word again, if they returned, if they came back to God. This is what he, let me read to you. When you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, according to everything I commanded you today, Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your ancestors. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all of your heart and all of your soul and live. Then the Lord your God will make you most prosperous in all the work of your hands and in the fruit of your womb, the young of your livestock and the crops of your land. The Lord will again delight in you and make you prosperous just as he delighted in your ancestors if you obey the Lord your God and keep his commands and decrees that are written in the book of the law and turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. The implication that's left hanging in the air here is that this family of four 
ideally should have stayed where they were and turned their hearts back to the Lord. But what happens here is that instead of turning back to God, they actually turn their backs on God and emigrate from the promised land to Moab. They effectively take things into their own hands and instead of seeking God, they come up with a different kind of plan. Hey friends, what, what is worse here, though, than an external famine? That's bad, isn't it? But what's worse than that is the hunger that we feel inside our souls when our own hearts are far from God. This is a spiritual lesson to learn. Later on in the Bible, there's a prophet called Amos. It sounds like he should have been on Emmerdale Farm. Amos, the prophet. He warned God's people with these words. This is a serious point. The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine throughout the land. Not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Men will stagger from sea to sea, and they'll wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. What's worse than having no bread is for God to be silent, and people are stumbling around in the dark, hungry and thirsty, but there's a famine of the word of God. Well, this family turns its back on God's words. Moab, by the way, wasn't a good place to go either. This was a nation that had been Israel's enemy. God, we haven't got time to go into that, but God had warned them not to make a treaty with Moab. It was a nation that worshipped all kinds of pagan gods and had no time for the true God. Verse 2 adds more detail. Are you still with me? We, we find out the man's name. Um, the man's name was Elimelech. Elimelech means, my God is the king. His wife was called Naomi, which means pleasant. So we've got here, Mr. My God is the king, and his wife, Mrs. Pleasant, living in the house of bread. It's not the American dream, but it's the Israeli dream. But when things go wrong, rather than seek God, they try to find answers away from God. And can't we so often be like this? When difficulties come, instead of turning to God, we turn our backs on him and we come up with some plan of our own to solve our perceived problems. And it's interesting, in the text, it says, they, he, he went together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. That's always what we mean, isn't it? We'll just go the opposite way, just for a little bit. We'll, we'll just turn our backs on God for a couple of weeks while we get some relief. And then we'll come back. It's not going to be permanent. We always end up telling ourselves that it's necessary to leave God and sort ourselves out and then we'll come back to him after a little while. Actually, three of them never came back because three of them died in Moab. I forgot to uh, make my slides on. Nightmare in Moab. First of all, eliminate the husband dies. And the, the man who has tried to avoid death in the promised land is now being buried by his wife in a pagan land. How ironic is that? And Naomi's two sons, 
Marlon and Kilion marry Moabite women. Understandably, they live there, Orpah and Ruth. They're married for ten years, but interestingly, there's no grandchildren. Ten years is long enough, isn't it? No grandchildren are born. And then tragedy strikes again when the two sons also both die. And in a culture that is all about family, in a culture that's all about preserving your family line and keeping the family land, the emphasis here is on the fact that Naomi, poor Naomi, has nothing left. By now she's most likely over 50 years old. She's too old to have kids. If she was younger, she might have been able to go back to her parents, but she's too old maybe even for that. Her two daughters-in-law are now husbandless. She has no job. She has no land. She has no prospects. She has no family. This is how the narrator sets the story up at the beginning. What is going to happen to this woman, Naomi, who has now lost everything? I think it becomes clear that God has been working quietly in Naomi's heart. And she hears good news from home. Verse 6, when Naomi heard in Moab, and listen to what the narrator says, when Naomi heard in Moab, not that the food had come, but when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people. You see how God's in that? This is not just about food. This is about the Lord. That means that the people at home must have turned their hearts back to God and he's come to their aid and the people are rejoicing and glad again and Naomi senses that the time has come for her to go to where God is blessing his people again. And in verse 6, it's the first time that the Hebrew word return is used. She and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home. I think Naomi is like the Old Testament version of the prodigal son. You know the story of the prodigal son? This is it. And I want to say to you, For many of us, you know, there are times in our life when, like Naomi, we know in our hearts that we've done something we maybe should not have done. But it's not enough for her to realize what she's done. What she needs to know and what we need to know is that God will be kind to us when we come home. Isn't it? The thing that will spare us to go back to God is the promise that when we do, he'll open his arms wide and receive us. That's the only reason why anyone turns back to God. If you've been far away from God, you need to know that he'll welcome you when you come home. That he'll forgive your sins. And not hold things against you. I don't think the things that happened to Naomi here are punishments. But these things definitely humble her. I think Naomi here is very conscious of God's discipline in her life. She says to her daughters in law in verse 13 that the Lord's hand has turned against me. When she gets home later, she tells her former friends that the Almighty has made her life very bitter. Not that she's bitter, but that her life has been bitterly hard. She says to them that she left Bethlehem full, but is coming back empty. That's interesting, isn't it? Because they didn't leave Bethlehem full. They were hungry when they left. I think what Naomi's saying is that when they left, they thought they were full, 
They had a family. They were full of themselves, if you like. Their own ideas, their own plans. But when it all unraveled, it had humbled her. And now she's coming back chastened, empty, and yet trusting God. It is amazing, I think, that her pain can be expressed so honestly and yet with the realisation that God is in control. And Naomi wants to go home to take refuge in the Lord now. It's a massive step of faith too because she basically comes home to nothing. Her former land is probably overgrown before she had left God at home to go and try and find something, now she comes home to God with nothing left. When I was a teenager, I, I, I remember there was a Christian singer who was called John Pantry. And he wrote a song called Empty Handed. I looked it up. I couldn't remember the words, but... Um, let me just read to you some of the lyrics. I think Naomi could have sung this. Empty-handed. That is how he wanted me. He commanded. I left my own plans at his feet till I had nothing, nothing of my own. And then he filled my life to overflowing. One of the verses says, Oh, how I wanted to be godly. All oh, the things I planned that I would do for good. But my life was so full with the plans of my own, I couldn't see the plans he had for me. Naomi had big plans, but came home empty. But what is interesting about all of this is that Ruth would never have been converted if Naomi hadn't started the long journey home. Ruth has lived with her mother-in-law for over 10 years. Maybe she's seen something of her struggle. Maybe even something of her faith. But now, as Naomi returns home back to Bethlehem, and in a sense back to God, Ruth is beginning to see that Naomi's God is not just the God of the good, but that he's the God of the returning sinner. If you're a Christian, there's a challenge implied in this. Do you think that people will only become Christians by seeing your perfect life? Are you trying to hide your faults and flaws somehow, trying to maintain the appearance of having everything sorted? Do you know what? Sometimes God uses our failure and our returning home to show to people who are close to us that he is a loving and forgiving God. I was challenged by one writer this week to reflect on how the tragic nature of Naomi's life was used by God to bring Ruth to faith. I'm sure that Naomi would have been asking God, why, why? But on the road home, here is at least part of the answer that even in Naomi's mistakes and in her pain, God was reaching his arm a long way into a foreign land to bring Ruth into his kingdom. In a way, what was death to Naomi was life for Ruth. I'm reminded of the fact in the New Testament there was a man called Stephen who was stoned to death for his Christian faith. And in Luke, in, uh, Luke tells us in the book of Acts that there was a man called Saul sitting there watching. And what was death for Stephen became life for Saul as he was converted on the Damascus road 
and became a, became a great servant of Christ, the Apostle Paul. Sometimes, one of the secrets of the gospel is that in God's ways, sometimes death leads to life. And that's what happens here in this story. So that's number, that's number one. Ruth is converted only because Naomi goes home. Here's my second point. And we'll be a bit quick with this one. Ruth is converted only because Naomi shows unconditional love. So we've said already, haven't we, the centre of this passage happens on the road between Moab and Jerusalem and, and Bethlehem. Naomi suddenly stops in verse, is it verse 8? And she addresses her daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, together. And she says, go back. She's quite emphatic, go back, go back. The question is, why does Naomi want them to go back to Moab? I think we can know some of the things she doesn't mean. So let, let me just give you three quick thoughts. Um, first of all, this, there's a big word here, but Naomi is not what we would call a religious pluralist. What do I mean by that? Well, Naomi, at this point now, is not the kind of person who thinks that oh, everybody's gods are equal, and they're all the same, and it doesn't matter what you believe so long as you're sincere. She later tells Ruth that Oprah has gone back to her own gods, so she knows there's a difference. But interestingly, just look with me at verse 8. When she prays, she, she says in verse 8, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. But she doesn't say, May your gods bless you when you get there. What she says is, May the Lord, Naomi's God, show you kindness as you've shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. So she prays, but not to their gods. She prays to her God. Why? Because she believes that the authority of her God extends even to Moab. She doesn't think that all gods are equal. She doesn't say, may your gods bless you. She says, may my God bless you. It's just an interesting... Secondly, I want you to see that Naomi is not indifferent to them going. The truth is, I hope you get the pathos in the story. Naomi needs them. She loves them. Her life is even more empty than it would be without them. She is giving up her happiness so that they can find their own path one writer describes this as a noble act of self-denial by this aged Hebrew widow on this plane, speaking to strip herself of all remaining comfort and to face the dark future utterly childless, alone and helpless. That means that Naomi is putting their needs before her own. Go back to your mothers. The truth is, if they follow Naomi, they'll never be married. Because no self-respecting Israelite man would marry a Moabite woman, let alone one that's been married before. If they follow Naomi back to Bethlehem, their lives are basically over. It's worse than that, though. Can we jump just for one second into chapter 2? Because in the next chapter, Ruth goes to glean in the harvest field of Boaz. And he says to her, stay in my fields until the end of the harvest, and I'll tell my men not to hurt you. And Naomi says the same. At the end of chapter, 22, chapter 2, verse 22, it will be good for you to go with his girls, because in someone else's field, you may get hurt. Why? She's a foreign refugee. When she comes into these fields, there are some men who would abuse her, harm her, hurt her. Why the fear? Because she's not an Israelite. And some men are brutes. To come to Israel and work 
is dangerous. And so Naomi says to them, even though she loves them, go home. And she's willing to let them go, even though that means that she will be more lonely and have less than nothing. But look at Ruth's response. She is absolutely, Opa goes home. Naomi decides to stay, Ruth decides to stay with Naomi and to risk everything. Verse 16. Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people, even the ones that might abuse me, they'll be my people. And your God, my God, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Naomi is actually utterly speechless. And so the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. Here's, here's the thing. Ruth chooses God plus nothing with Naomi in Bethlehem and counts that greater than comfort minus God back home in Moab. That's the sum that she's doing in her head. I would rather have God and you and nothing else in Bethlehem than go home and have all the things you speak of and lose God. That reminds me of something Jesus said about what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and lose? It's the same idea. Being an immigrant, some of you well know, is hard to move country because where you are is dangerous, is a massive thing. But I want to tell you, in the history of the world, there has surely never been an immigrant like Ruth. She doesn't move for a better life. She's an immigrant knowing that when she gets there, her life will be worse. But it's more than loyalty to Naomi. When Opa goes back, Naomi says to Ruth, look, she's gone, why don't you go to? Go home to your gods. And what Ruth's really saying here, amazingly, is, Naomi, I don't want my gods anymore. I want your God. Ruth is converted when she sees the unconditional love that Naomi has for her. And that one fact attracts her to Naomi's God. Not only is he the God who welcomes returning sinners back home, he's also the God who produces this kind of sacrificial love in the hearts of his children. It's like Ruth is saying, if your God can make you love people like this even though you'll be lonely and needy as a result I want it to you get that? listen no one in our modern culture likes people who evangelise anymore evangelism is like the worst crime you can, you can commit to try and convert someone to have the audacity to think that your God is better than someone else's and that he should be everyone else's God is criminal. So keep your faith to yourself. Don't ram it down anyone else's throats and we'll all get along just fine. We live in a culture that is now evangelistic about not being evangelistic. The truth is that we all believe that our own view of God is the right one. 
And we all tend to believe that the world would be a better place if everyone agreed with the view of God that we hold to. The question is, what does your view of God teach you to do with the people who don't agree with you? Our modern culture is confused about this. We're tolerant, unless you don't agree with us and then we'll smack you. What does your philosophy, your religion, your God tell you to do with the people who are not like you? Naomi's God set her free to love Ruth, who did not know her God, not for who, what she could get out of her, but she loved her for who she was. And when Ruth saw that, sacrificial love, ironically, she wanted it. Naomi was trying to send her home, but when Ruth saw the beauty of God in Naomi's faith, she immediately believed God herself. Hey, we're nearly done. There are lessons here for us as Christians, I think, to learn about how our lives can speak to the Ruths that might be around us even in our families. But my sermon today is not really intended to urge you to be like Naomi or be like Ruth. I hope you can see that all of this points to, points down the years of history to Ruth's greatest descendant who's greater than Naomi and Ruth, the Lord Jesus. Ruth calculated that if she kept her life and went back to Moab, Naomi would lose her life. But if she gave up her life and went with Naomi, Naomi would gain life. That very transaction points to Jesus Christ, who left his father's throne and came, what? Down. He became an outcast. He became poor. He became vulnerable. And ultimately, he became dead. He laid down his life in order to save your life and my life. This is not just an idea to agree with or an example to follow. Jesus is a living person who welcomes home returning sinners and who gives his life away so that you and I can find life. When you and I see Jesus Christ in all his beauty and sense something of his sacrificial love for us who were his enemies, surely the only response is to do what Ruth did and commit our lives to him completely. No strings attached, no time limit, no conditions. That, friends, is conversion. This first chapter reveals that when God is at work in the darkest of times, in the lives of ordinary people, the first thing we need is to be converted, like Ruth, to return to the God who loves us even though we reject him. Let's just bow for a moment. We're going to pray. And as we pray, I want to read to you some words from the Bible, later on in the Bible. Just in the quietness, hear God's word to all of our hearts this afternoon this is what God says return return Israel put your name in there return to the Lord your God your sins have been your downfall take words with you and return to the Lord and say to him forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Assyria cannot save us. We will not mount war horses. We will never again say, our gods 
to what our own hands have made. For in you, the fatherless find compassion. And God says, I will heal their waywardness and love them freely. For my anger has turned away from them. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are not some kind of tyrant. We thank you, Father, that you are gracious, kind, loving, forgiving. Father, where would we be if you were not like this? Father, we pray that you would help all of us in our hearts to do what this passage is telling us to do, which is to return. Father, help us to put to one side our plans and come and lay them at the cross where Jesus died. And Father, like Naomi, in the whole trajectory of this book, we pray that in our emptiness as we come to you, you would do what you have promised and fill us with your love, kindness, grace. Our Father, may your word have power even today. May it find a place in our hearts. We yearn. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.